Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. In 2020, we observed the 150th anniversary of the Red River Rebellion, when Louis Riel and his followers established a provisional government in what is known today as Manitoba. Less remembered, however, was Ottawa's military response to this rebellious act. It became known as the Wolseley Expedition in honor of its leader, an Englishman named Colonel Garnet Wolseley. Riel's action was revolutionary and proved to be one of the most divisive events in Canadian history. Equally controversial was the response of the Macdonald government. My guest today to talk about all this is Ted Glenn, and he's taken a different perspective on the Wolseley expedition. His book is published by Dundon Press and is entitled Embedded, Two Journalists, a Burlesque Star, and the Expedition to Oust Louis Riel. Ted Glenn, welcome to Witness to Yesterday for the second time. I'm honored to be here again, Pat. This is a, this is a fantastic opportunity. Thank you. Ted, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Take me to April 6, 1870. What happened in Toronto? Sure. Well, on that day, there were about 10,000 people crammed into the square out front of the City Hall in Toronto. Not the current one, not the old City Hall, but the older, older City Hall that is now uh, kind of encased within St. Lawrence Market at the corner of Front and Jarvis. Before you can kind of understand why all these people were there, though, you've got to understand a bit more background on the issue. So back in, in March 69, um, the Canadian government negotiated uh, the sale of Rupert's Land. Uh, and then in the summer, passed legislation to uh, uh, make the territory part of, the, part of Canada as the Northwest Territory. And then also passed legislation to, to create a, a new government. Uh, they appointed a man named uh, William McDougall, who was a, a cabinet minister, to become the uh, uh, lieutenant governor. McDougall goes out in the fall of 1869 to claim his throne, and what he encounters is a, a bunch of agitation. The residents of Red River were not happy with uh, the Canadian government's actions. They, they basically weren't consulted uh, about the sale, and they, they weren't told what was going to happen to themselves or, or their land. Uh, so the, um, the Métis... Uh, organized uh, as, a, as a committee under Louis Riel, and they refused entry to McDougall. They uh, didn't allow him to cross the, the border at Pembina. And then in the ensuing uh, month or so, under Louis Riel's direction, they created a provisional government in the absence of any kind of a civil authority. And in the process of doing that, they, they took over um, the uh, Hudson Bay's uh, Fort Geary. As they were doing this, there was a group of about 45 Canadian loyalists led by uh, future Lieutenant Governor John Schultz, uh, a poet named Charles Mayer, who was uh, a member of the Nationalist Canadian uh, Canada First organization in, uh, in Ontario. And uh, these 45 uh, people were, were thrown in jail because of their support of McDougall and uh, their efforts to try to coordinate some kind of a resistance. Riel and his uh, provisional government threw them in jail. Fast forward a couple months to February, uh, Schultz, Mayer, uh, another fellow named Thomas Scott, and some others broke out of jail. Uh, and Schultz and Mayer made their way to Ontario uh, to try to drum up support and funding for their resistance uh, to, uh, uh, to Louis Riel's provisional government. Um, while they were on their way to Ontario, Thomas Scott goes uh, off to Portage La Prairie, and helps to organize another force to kind of release the rest of the prisoners. 
When they come back to Fort Garry, uh, that group's imprisoned, and Scott himself is a bit of a hothead. Um, he's swearing, he's cussing, he's kicking, he's fighting with his guards, he's threatening to kill Riel. And finally, after three or four days, uh, he's brought before a, uh, a tribunal, and uh, the tribunal uh, votes to, uh, uh, to execute him, which they do at the beginning of March. And so just as uh, uh, Schultz and Mayer are making their way back to Ontario, uh, the Canadian media are, uh, are already uh, quite sympathetic to this position. And then the news of Scott's death comes along. Uh, you know, a, a good Protestant Irish uh, from Ontario is killed, uh, and it, it, just, it just lights the, the place on fire. And so by April the 6th, there are all over Ontario, a number of what, what are called indignation meetings, where um, loyal Protestant, largely Irish um, uh, men are getting together and uh, you know asking for Riel's head. They're seeking vengeance. They want the Canadian government to put down, in their words, this upstart half-breed. Um, and so the, the April 6th meeting was really the culmination of that sentiment in Ontario, that wildfire that was growing for the Canadian government to do something about these French-speaking half-breeds. But Ted, almost at the same time, the McDonald government is negotiating with the provisional government uh, to formalize the entry of Manitoba into Confederation. Um, this is all happening at the same time. Was the what's going on in the McDonald government's mind? First of all, they're they're negotiating, and they they will they will have a deal with Riel. They will pass the Manitoba Act. Uh, what's the public attitude at that point? Well, well, at that point, I mean, the uh, I mean, it's still a couple of years off, but you've got the the second general election coming up, and you know the the vote in Ontario is crucial to uh, for Macdonald uh, and and the support of his 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 government, um, and so. For the Ontario piece, anyways, Macdonald needs to sh to show force. He doesn't need to demonstrate force. But he needs to show force. He needs that he's doing something significant about uh, about the problem. That, 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 I think that's that's a first piece on the military front. The second piece on the military front, uh, you know, when the, the they needed somehow not to not to repeat the the McDougal scandal. Uh, McDougal went out with you know forty five um, cartfuls of his books and his clothes and his children and everything else. But he didn't have a military force to support him. He didn't even have a, a police force. So they needed to have something to kind of back up the the, and ensure the, the, the peaceful transfer of, of Rupert's land. Right. So it was a real, it was a show of Canadian sovereignty in a way. He had to have some sort of response, a military response in Manitoba in order to show that it was Canadian territory, even though there was a Manitoba Act. Well, and, and that's the third part about it. Like, there's a real geopolitical component to this as well. Alaska had just been purchased by uh, the U.S. Uh, recently. In 1867, yes. And, um, and, and there, were, there was a large movement in the States um, that, to annex that land and, and, you know, to complete America's manifest destiny. So they needed to plant a flag, and they, hopefully it was going to be a British flag to, to assert their sovereignty. So you've got geopolitical pressures, you've got popular pressures in Toronto and elsewhere. And then you have a practical aspect of having to establish sovereignty, a Canadian sovereignty uh, in the Red River, in the Red River settlement. Now, so the, the McDonald government turns to Garnet Wolseley. Who is this man? 
Oh, uh, he's he's an up and comer. He'd uh, you know he he'd fought in the Crimean War. He just about lost a leg there. He's a British man. British man, uh, and and he came to Canada in 1861 uh, as part of the uh, British government's um, increase in forces as a result of the Trent Affair, which just about dragged the uh, Britain into the the American Civil War. Right. So he was he'd been on the ground for five years, and in fact, he in 1866 he was one of the the people, um, the officials who negotiated um, the the resolution to the um, uh, to the Finian invasion. Um, down at uh, at Fort Erie, so he was a known quantity. He'd worked himself up to uh, the, the deputy quartermaster general by by eighteen seventy. He'd established officer training schools at La Prairie and Thorold. You know, it, he was a known quantity. Canadians trusted him, uh, and you know, most importantly, he was a Brit. And so, uh, you know, he just he just seemed like the the best, most logical choice. He married a Canadian girl, did he not? He did. <laughs> So he knew you knew he was a good Canadian somewhere in his heart anyway. <laughs> so your book is captivating because it catches this expedition organized by Garnet Wolseley to the Red River, but you're doing it through completely new people, certainly new people to me. Um, there are two pros, there are two journalists in this story. I'd like to start with them. You've got Robert Cunningham and Molyneux St. John. Who are these guys? <laughs> well, uh, they're, well, they're both they're both English. Uh, Cunningham's born in, in eighteen thirty six. Uh, we don't know a lot about him. He went to he went to a, a science university. He had four kids and a wife. He immigrated to Canada in, in eighteen sixty eight, uh, and then when he first got here, um, George Brown hired him on at the Globe, and so he was a he was the the City Beat reporter uh, and had been for a couple of years. Uh, we know a bit more about St. John. He was born in 1838. Uh, he had a, um, a, a spell in the, as, a, as a Royal Marine. He fought in the Battle of Canton. Uh, he came back with Nicholas Hornsby uh, and uh, fought in the Pig War in 1860. Um, look that one up uh, for uh, another interesting little uh, tidbit. And then he retired in, in 1862 to, to Plymouth, where he became a playwright. And he spends the next seven years writing plays, reviewing plays, and then he immigrates with his wife in uh, 1868 to Canada. And he's a working journalist at that point? He's a working journalist, yeah. So he, uh, George Brown hires him on as well. He's onto the editorial board right away. So they're both working with the Globe. Yeah. Now, you've got this third person, uh -huh. uh, and you've dedicated your book to her, and that's Kate Reno. Who is Kate Reno? Uh, she is an enigma. <laughs> she, she. Well, for the, it was funny because for the longest time, yeah, I fa actually found some pictures of her, and so I'd been carrying the pictures around on my phone. I'd printed a couple of them off. I'd put it up on my office wall, and 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 I'm pretty sure at the beginning, my wife thought I was having an affair because I was so captivated with this with this woman named Kate. And then I had to explain to her that she, you know, she'd been dead for 130 <laughs> years, so don't worry about it. But Ted, you dedicated your book to her. This is special. <laughs> She she was born in 1841, and um, and a, a pop impresario actually takes her in as an orphan, uh, and they go go on to live in Paris. Uh, and she starts as a as a child music singing star, returns to England in the, in the early 1860s, and becomes quite a quite a popular burlesque star. Now at this time, burlesque was was basically ribald comedy. It wasn't what we picture it as today, but you know she's got a lovely voice. She's she's apparently an enchanting actress, and uh, and the crowds love her. 
she hooks up with St. John in 1862, and, and they, they first come to New York for a year, and uh, she, she kind of lights the place up in New York, and then becomes a crowd favorite, and then comes to Canada. And she's playing in Montreal, she's playing in, in Toronto. And uh, so, yes, she, she had established herself as a, as a real kind of famous uh, uh, burlesque star. Now, okay, we'll get into how she gets involved in all this, but let's go back to Colonel Wolseley for a second. So he leaves Toronto uh, in, in, I mean, his expedition starts to leave, if my understanding is correct, uh, over several days in, in May of 1870. Yeah. And Cunningham and St. John decide that they will follow the Wolseley expedition to Manitoba. And how long will it take them to get there? And they start in dribs and drabs by like May fifth, and they they get to uh, uh, Red River by August twenty fourth. And Kate Reno is with them. <laughs> so I mean, we understand, we know why Cunningham kind of gets the assignment uh, to go along, uh, embedded with the, with the expedition. Uh, actually, it would, and that would be his second time going out west. And in eighteen sixty nine, as the provisional government's announced in, in in Red River, George Brown sends Cunningham out there to, to try and get an interview. And uh, and he does, but he also gets thrown in jail and then Riel kicks him out of the out of the colony again under threat of death. Don't come back. So what was interesting though is his traveling companion is a guy named John Ross Robertson, who is uh the, the publisher of the uh Toronto Telegraph. And so in April when the expedition's announced the uh, Telegraph, John Ross Robertson, purloins Robert Cunningham uh, to be their, their embedded journalist. So George Brown quickly has to figure out, well, I've just lost my Western reporter. Uh, who am I going to choose? And so he chooses the, the guy on staff who actually has some military, British military experience. And that's how St. John got the gig. We have no idea how Rano got the gig. Oh. All we know is that uh, um, the uh, the officers with the the British Corps of the expedition uh, saw her a lot in Toronto when they were stationed there, and and they really liked her. Ted, it takes three months to get to Manitoba. They they arrive. Your book says uh, on the twenty fourth of August. Why did it take so long? Well, I think you got you got to try to picture in your mind the, the immensity of the task, right? So you've got. You know, you've got 87 officers, you've got 1,048 men, you've got 256 voyageurs, you've got 15 guides, you've got 250 laborers, you've got 140 25 to 30 foot boats, you've got 52 wagons, uh, eight dozen oxen, a couple hundred horses, food, shelter, um, uh, military supplies, everything that, that this force is going to need to get, uh, you know, for three months travel. And, and not only that, but they've got to transport everything from Toronto by rail to Collingwood, Collingwood to, to Thunder Bay by steamer. Our listeners should be taking out their maps is what you're saying, Ted. <laughs> yeah. Toronto to Collingwood, Collingwood to? Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay by boat? Seven steamers, uh, two tugs, two gunboats, four schooners, one barge, and uh, about 19 uh, uh, different trips by those vessels between the beginning of May to the end of June to get all that stuff up to Thunder Bay. And of course, my, my friends in Thunder Bay will tell me it was not called Thunder Bay in those days. No, initially it was government station. <laughs> okay. Thunder Bay sounds better. Okay. <laughs> then where? Then what happens, Ted? Once you go from government station, you still got to make it to Manitoba. Well, they well basically, when, when they started, they had nothing. I mean, the, the route they chose was by a senior engineer, Simon Dawson. And he, he chose this old uh, Northwest Company canoe route. Basically, they went from Red River 
to uh, to Shabandwin Lake, which is about 48 miles outside of uh, present-day Thunder Bay. But in order to get to Shabandwin Lake, they had to make a road to take all the supplies up. So they had to spend a couple of months building this damn road, and then they had to contend with a couple of massive forest fires, really drenching rains that kind of continued to wash out the bridges and the roads. And finally, you know, they got all the stuff up to Shabandwin Lake by, by the middle of July. But, but then from there to, to Red River, I mean, you've got 125 of these boats, 12 men to a boat, uh, and they're going over a route that was built for canoes, not for these massive structures. They had to build 47 portages, totaling over seven miles. The longest one is about a mile and a half. And then they have to, you know, at every portage, they got to unload two and a half tons of stuff, carry it up and over the portage, take the boat, and then reload it, and off they go. So it took a while. I can tell the three months was a record. Well, it was, in fact. And 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 Wolseley, you know, for the rest of his career, would would uh, look back on that as like that that was a that was some military feat we accomplished. Okay, so let's come back to uh, Cunningham and Molino Saint John and Reno. Uh, what makes their accounts so interesting? What got you? To, to what convinced you to highlight their accounts? Well, the first thing was, was the, this, this tantalizing morsel in, a, in an appendix to uh, a book, Toil and Trouble, uh, basically a history of the expeditions to Red River. There's this, this morsel in the appendix that says there was a woman who went on this expedition. <laughs> She's the only woman? She's the only woman, Okay, as far as I can tell. A number of women came up to Thunder Bay while they were stationed there, in, including Wolseley's wife, um, uh, to, to, to see the expedition. That summer, it was a massive tourist draw. There was a bunch of people that came up on the steamers to, to, see, to see the expedition. But that, that for me, was started it. So that was, that was the, the more so. What, what's interesting about their account, though, is that just after they left Shabandwin Lake, uh, St. John hurt his hand and he couldn't write. And so... Uh, he and Renault did the rest of the Globe's coverage together. She wrote it. She wrote a lot of stuff herself from what I could make out from, from the writing. Uh, but it was also a collaboration, a, a difficult collaboration between the two of them because he was sick. So that, that's the first part that's really interesting is you've got this lead female character taking a significant role in, in uh, kind of accounting for this. The second thing that's really interesting uh, going back and, and reading through these accounts, there's 89 stories in total. It's, it's the... It's this sensitivity, the, the sympathy that they have for all of the indigenous peoples that they meet along the way. At, at one point, they go through, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a tangent, but I think you like those. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think these days we, we, we get a, we, we, we're under the impression that, you know, you've got this monolithic approach to uh, indigenous peoples in the 19th century and that everybody's kind of broad brush labeled as racist and bad and, and horrible. But it's not the case. I mean, there's, there's this really interesting piece um, that they write when they're halfway through um, uh, almost the Fort Francis. And, and uh, the two of them write about how um, the, the Hudson Bay Company basically is, is built on an economic model of slavery uh, that basically uh, forces the indigenous peoples in, in, into this, this, this slave role, into this serfdom role. Uh, and, and they write this piece and say, look, what, what's really great about this potential for selling of Rupert's Line is that this is going to uh, give indigenous peoples uh, um, the, the tools, the economic tools to actually be self-sufficient for the first time in their lives. So they become real strong advocates and they're very sympathetic to, to the characters that they meet. And so going back and reading that, you know, you're kind of just struck with this. Well, no, you know, uh, it, it wasn't just a, a, a very 
um, singular viewpoint on Indigenous peoples, there was quite a debate at the time about how best how best they should be treated and, and what kind of relations uh, Canada should have with them. You also, I mean, you use the texts um, uh, consistently through your book, Ted. Uh, these are colorful accounts. I mean, this is good journalism. It's good stuff. It's fantastic stuff. And and it helps that, uh, you know, you, you, you've got, particularly in uh, St. John, you've got somebody who really understands the military aspect of it. Yes, that adds to it. Um, they finally get to the Red River Colony. Uh, so, as we say, uh, 24th of August, 1870. Uh, what happens? Is there a big, is there a big battle? Well, the, the, most of the troops are hoping there is. <laughs> they put all this time and effort in. Uh, but un, un, unfortunately, from their perspective, they get there, and um, Riel and his men had, uh, had cleared out of, the, of Fort Gary in, in about 15 minutes before they, they arrived. And so, uh, and, you know, every, metaphorically, literally, the place was a mess. You know, stuff scattered everywhere. Uh, the, there was no civil authority in place. Wolseley only had authority over the expedition. He didn't even have authority over the, um, um, over the voyageurs and the guides. Uh, and, and they, they had to wait, they had to wait at least a week for the, the new Lieutenant Governor, um, Adams Archibald to, to show up. So, you know, Cunningham, probably a bit exaggeratingly, call, calls it a reign of terror. And because people are, you know, there's no civil authority, there's no policemen, there's drinking in the streets, there's brawling. You know, the, the men finally got paid and, you know, so they went into the, uh, into Winnipeg, into the bars, and, you know, it was a mess. There's no fight. But my point is that there's no battle. I mean, for this military expedition uh, to work its way through the north for three months, by the way, Ted, why? I mean, could it would it would it not have been simpler just to go through the United States? Absolutely, and and that was the dominant way, the predominant way of, of, of getting to Red River. Why did they not go take the take the train, and and uh, go through the U.S.? Well, first of all, the U.S. wouldn't let them. Oh, okay, that's an important point. <laughs> they didn't want a foreign army on their on their soil. Precisely, and particularly a British foreign army who they were still having a. Um, uh, you know, a fight with over uh, over the, the customs embargoes that they'd imposed during the, the Civil War. Um, but more importantly, and it's back to the sovereignty piece, they wanted to be able to, you know, if they had this new territory, they had to demonstrate that they could get to it on Canadian soil. Right, right. And, and what's interesting, you know, it takes them three months to get there, uh, this first expedition. The second expedition that goes out in 1871 uh, takes them about three and a half weeks because of the work that this first expedition had put in. So there's a lot of infrastructure being built here. There's a lot of logistics being created. The portages, yeah, yes. primarily. Okay, so there's no battle. Uh, and Colonel Wolseley, what happens to him? He just packs it, packs, packs his bags and comes back to Ottawa? Well, that was the deal. He, uh, the, the, the Brits said, look, you, know, you, you can take out a battalion of men, um, but they've they got to be home by Christmas. So you know, from day one... Uh, Wolseley was under the gun to get the troops home. And, and those are the last British troops that left North America. Uh, and so he, you know, what, they, they get there on August 24th. And by August 30th, the Brits are packing up and coming home. Wolseley stays on for, uh, to, to see um, Archibald installed. And then he too comes back. And then he's uh, back in England by, uh, by the end of October. It won't be the end of uh, Colonel Wolseley, though, will it? No, famously, he he goes off and fights a whole bunch of small wars in uh, in Africa and and works himself uh, all the way up to commander in chief of uh, uh, British forces. 
But most importantly, from a Canadian perspective, the, the thing that he's most remembered uh, for is the, is the Nile expedition in 1884. Uh, 8045, yes. And, and what's, what's important from that is that uh, in Wolseley's mind, uh, the thing that made the expeditions work was the indigenous uh, guides and the voyagers. Mm -hmm. And so he actually places a call and said, hey, look, we need, uh, you know, we need 350 uh, Iroquois from Ganasataki and Ganawage to come and uh, take our boats up the Nile. And go fight the Mahdi. <laughs> go fight the Mahdi. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you mentioned that there's this, uh, these voyageurs left behind uh, in, uh, in, in the Red River Colony and Fort Garry, and they have accounts to settle. Uh, what happened there exactly? You, you mentioned uh, a terror. Yeah, so you've got uh, you know about seven hundred and five uh, Canadian militia, uh, two thirds from Ontario, a third from Quebec. They're garrisoned there until the ne until the next the following June. Um, most of them uh, are there because of uh, patriotic patriotic duty, but some of them are hotheads, and some are there to to, to settle a score with with Riel. Um, and there's there's a there's a bunch of them that are um, are. are racist, violent uh, anarchists. So they set out that fall to try to intimidate um, local Métis, and, and they ran a number of them out of, out of the, the colony. And that's where you really begin to see the, 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 um, you know, the speed of the uh, uh, diaspora beginning uh, is, is around 1870. And it's starting with some of the militia, not, not all of them, for sure. Uh, but then there's there, the, you know, there's a good chunk of, uh, of the voyageurs who stay on as well, and they're under nobody's control. So it, it's, it's tricky. And, and one of the casualties, one of the, the saddest casualties in, the, in that first couple of weeks is the death of a man named Elzer Goulet, who was, uh, who was on the provisional government. Um, and, Best we can make out the the record is that there was a couple of voyageurs and and possibly one of the militiamen who had uh, uh, thought he was one of the individuals who'd killed Thomas Scott. They they chased him down to the river. Goulet couldn't swim real well, uh, but he jumped in anyways to try to escape them. And they uh, they pelted him with a bunch of rocks and stones and sticks, and uh, he he died in the river. Could McDonald have done more to establish peace? in Red River after that? What were the limitations? Why was there not peace? Well, it's, it's, that's such a tricky question. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things he probably could have done better was, was the timing of, uh, um, Ar of um, Archibald, uh, Archibald Adams coming out as the lieutenant governor. He probably should have sent him at the same time as, uh, as Wolseley in the, as part of the expedition. I mean, um, Adams Archibald does, I, I think, in my estimation, uh, a fantastic job of conciliation, trying to bring the parties together. Uh, but but he's doomed from the start. I mean, uh, the next year um, there's a there's a threat of a Fenian invasion up across the border, and uh, you know he he calls on the Métis and Riel shows up and uh, brings his uh, 400 troops, mounted troops to to help out, and you know he goes and shakes hands with Riel on a Sunday afternoon, and that sunk his political career. You know, basically uh, the calls were you got you got to get rid of this guy for uh, you know con considing with the with the devil. So. Uh, he, he was doomed from the start to try to bring it together. So I, I think McDonald could have done more. He probably could have stood by his man a little better, and he probably could have uh, had the timing done a little better as well. I suspect he thought that uh, Wolseley's expedition would have encountered more resistance and you know, didn't think that uh, sending Archibald would have been a good idea uh, so soon. I think they expected to have a lot more trouble. 
that uh, Wolseley can literally walk into Fort Garry, um, I think was a surprise to a lot of people. But listen, your story is more about Robert Cunningham and Molyneux St. John. What happens to those guys after after 1870? Do they, do they, uh, they set up a homestead? <laughs> Well, kind of. Uh, I mean, C C Cunningham is, uh, in September, he leaves the, uh, uh, the Telegraph, and he starts his own newspaper. Uh, he becomes a co-publisher of the Manitoban. And it becomes a very strong supporter of uh, uh, Adams Archibald and his, his conciliation policy. And he campaigns for them. They write a whole bunch of editorials in support of him. Uh, and, and it's to the point that he builds his own rapport and friendship with, uh, uh, with, with locals and, and with the Métis community. He actually becomes uh, quite, quite close with, with Louis Riel. Um, he's voted into Parliament in 1872. He serves as the member for uh, Marquette for uh, a couple of years. He's then appointed to the um, uh, Northwest Council. And, but unfortunately, uh, in the trip, West to sit on that council for the first time. He he dies in Minnesota of a of a lung hemorrhage. So, but he uh, yeah he he had quite a I think an impact uh, in those those couple of years that uh, that he was advocating for conciliation. Uh, Saint John as well gets uh, gets pulled in by uh, uh, by Ar by the Archibald administration. He becomes the first clerk of the Manitoba legislature, and he also is party two and signatory to uh, treaties one, two, and three. Actually works his way up to be uh, temporarily uh, superintendent of Indian Affairs in 1878, and then he turns through a whole bunch of contracts. And uh, his last job is as a gentleman usher of the Black Rod uh, in Parliament, and then dies uh, in uh, 1902. And now, what about Kate Reno? What happens to her? Ha <laughs> ha! She goes back to relative obscurity, uh, unfortunately. I mean, she uh, we've got a, we know a little bit. She goes back to Montreal. She uh, she actually manages a popular theater there for a couple of years, um, and then she's kind of back and forth with uh, St. John to England uh, out west. She acts a little bit, but the thing I think that's most intriguing is 1871. She actually toured around a, a, a public lecture called the Great Northwest where she talks about her experiences. We don't have a copy of what that is, but we've got a really good review from the Globe. Uh, and by all accounts, it was, uh, you know, according to her spirit, it was a rollicking good time uh, to come hear it. So this was, like a, this was like a show she would give on, a public lecture? Public lecture, yeah. She did it in Toronto, she did it in St. Catharines, she did it in Hamilton, uh, and a few other locations. And when did she die, Ted? She died in uh, the late 1880s. She she was uh, a victim of a, uh, a traffic accident in uh, Saint Catharines in uh, in Montreal, and she's buried with her husband in Mount Royal Cemetery on Rue Saint Catherine in Montreal. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I have to ask you the the, the classic uh, Champlain Society uh, question about your sources. It's my favorite question. Yes. What were your sources for this book? What 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 what's what makes your book so special? In terms of your sources, well, what's 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 fun is um, the primary sources are the articles themselves. Like so, as I said, there's 89 pieces that uh, that these three wrote. Um, and what's interesting from the historical record, though, is that um, you know even even Jack Bumstead in his reporting the resistance and his Red River Rebellion, uh, he doesn't talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that the these these sources are basically lost. Uh, no, nobody has kind of tracked them, e even though they were the, you know, the the, the window to, to history in in 1870. 
Everybody seems to have forgotten about them. So that, that's the, the the first source. A couple of other the fun things though from a from a historical perspective that were that were fun to to get a handle on is there's a, there's a famous picture in the Toronto uh, Public Library with Robert Cunningham sitting in a uh, a birch bark canoe uh, with two Indigenous guides beside him, and for the longest time nobody could figure out why Robert Cunningham was in this. It's, I, I'm about 99% sure though that picture was taken in uh, Sault Ste. Marie just after he bought the boat and hired his guides, who, whom he described in quite a bit of detail. So I was interesting to get a handle on that. And, and, and Kate Reno, I mean, were you able to find more about her? Again, her story is really quite special here, to have this, to have this woman, um, the only woman, escort the Wolseley expedition. And as you say, as you describe her, you know, writing a lot of the articles, there's a lot of her personality and style in the dispatches that are published in Toronto. Uh, she's not militarily trained. She's not known to be a writer, and yet she pulls it off rather magnificently. Um, is there more about her? How did you find her picture? Did you Was it easy to find her, her picture? You have a very nice picture of her in the book. The topic collection at the McCord Museum in, in Montreal. Ah. Oh. They've got a set of hers from 1868, and I believe she's in she's in the sailor's uniform uh, that she was in uh, that she wore in her her most famous play. Yes, yes, um, that's great. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful book, Ted, and it's a completely different perspective on the on the Wolseley expedition and uh, uh, what happened there to uh, to to as you say to establish Canadian uh, sovereignty in Manitoba, and um, I congratulate you on it. Thank you. Thank you once again for having me. That was Ted Glenn, professor of public administration at Humber College and the author of Embedded, Two Journalists, A Burlesque Star, and The Expedition to Aust Louriel, published by Dundurn Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on January 8th, 2021, by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.